I'm Rob Hopkins, and this is Imagination Taking Power, a podcast where I share with you conversations, insights, and aha moments on my journey towards writing a book about imagination. Stuart Candy is a professional futurist and is an associate professor in the School of Design at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. His collaborative experiential futures practice brings possible scenarios to life through the creation of tangible artefacts and immersive situations which give people a very real taste of how different versions of the future might turn out. As you'll hear, he playfully brings future scenarios alive in the present through collaborations with designers, artists, actors, activists, businesses and more, and he's worked in many different places. He was recently at the Transition Design Symposium at Dartington and I took the opportunity to sit under a tree in the shade on a gloriously sunny day for the following fascinating conversation with Stuart about the future, the imagination and the creative approaches he has developed. I only discovered afterwards that one of us had had our phones too close to my recorder resulting in the annoying interference which you will hear at intervals during this recording. I can only apologise and hope it doesn't affect your enjoyment of the conversation too much. So, I started out by asking Stuart the obvious question, what is a professional futurist? Someone who helps people think about things that haven't happened yet, Okay. Uh, usually on a, on a longer time scale than tomorrow morning or next week or next year, um, more uh, the, the systems that we're embedded in, the industries, the organizations, the, uh, the communities, the countries, the planet. So how, how would you evaluate our the state of health of our collective ability to think positively and constructively about the future? Um, well, I, I, th- I think the, um, the need to do a lot better with that kind of brings the, the lack of facility with it into sharp relief. So um, whereas uh, I think probably at some point in the mid-20th century there began to be a kind of collective recognition of um, uh, sort of the the um, responsibility that we have, whether we like it or not, for shaping the histories that we live through. Um, I don't think there's yet been a sort of commensurate um, uh, installation, if you like, of, uh, of, the, of the capabilities that are needed to step up to the plate. So um, from my point of view, futures literacy, you could say, is, um, is distressingly low. But the good news is that it's learnable. I mean, mm. um, the, the capacity to imagine, the capacity to, uh, to narrate, uh, and from there to live into alternatives is, um, is actually very high because we're, we're very plastic, mm. um, humans are. Um, but, uh, but, you know, yeah, you have to put effort into it. And I don't think that's really what our, what our institutions have been mm. um, geared at. It's not mm. what uh, you were saying before. It's not, not really what, um, what our schooling has been geared towards, particularly in the last couple of generations. It seems after a certain age, uh, and from what I can tell, uh, I don't have any kids in the, in the schooling system, but um, from what I can tell, the, the age gets lower and lower at which, the, right, that's enough faffing around, let's get on with it, and you, know, you need to start getting runs on the board and, and um, uh, working on your CV and, and bringing your scores up and sort of improving your employment prospects. And I think that, that, uh, that discipline, um, and I mean this in a negative sense, that, di- that the, the, the discipline in the service of, of uh, a kind of economic um, functions has um, squeezed out our citizenship functions and our kind of um, 
human joy producing and uh, and sharing functions i think these are these are um, roles that we mm. sort of haven't been cultivating and it's not just in education you know that um our, our political um conversations are are extremely sort of um well paradoxically on the one hand they're, they're very sort of results oriented like how do we know that this policy is working or is going to work in order for us to want to um to pass it um and then on the other hand sort of extremely rhetorical and sort of gestural and and um uh, and not particularly evidence-based but more kind of affinity based it's mm. uh, we tend to i think vote for the people who seem to be on our wavelength um, rather than evaluating them on the quality of their ideas or the ability or, or their ability to convincingly show us that those ideas might lead us in collective directions that we want to go mm. so I yeah i i mean i, th- I think in in short um there's a lot of room for improvement <laughs> And, and why does it matter? Why, why does it matter that we, if we just get mired completely in dystopias and the future disappears behind this kind of smokescreen of, of, of sort of awful outcomes and we become unable to think about the future with positivity, with hope, with possibility, why does that matter? Um, well, I, who wants to live in that? context you know i mean i i, I suppose I, the, the way you're asking the question it's a little bit leading the witness like if you don't if you don't see a problem with that then I'm, you know maybe maybe there isn't a problem but like also what the hell's wrong with you yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know um uh and I, I think what you sketched is kind of um is not too far off where we seem to find uh, find ourselves i mean the um developments certainly in the in the uh, anglosphere of politics over the last couple of years are fairly definitively dystopian or you know sort of in a in a, in a literary and cinematic sense mm. we seem to be inhabiting um uh, some of the worst stuff that we could that we could have dreamed up um and uh and imagining our and then acting our way out of it um is imperative mm. i would have thought and uh, one of the people that I interviewed was Henry Giroux. Uh, he's hmm. a sort of, do you know Henry? He's like no. a sort of left-wing academic <coughs> sort of activist guy. And he talked about, he used this term, the Trump disimagination machine. Mm-hmm. And he talks about the various ways in which, from his perspective, the Trump administration directly sets out to undermine and erode that sense of imagination. And one of the ways he talks about it is is about the past. He says that actually when you rewrite the past and you say, well, you know, the slaves all sort of came here in pursuit of the great American dream and you kind of twist and change the past, you then change how we're able to how we're able to think about the future. What do you see that connection well, between I mean, the past and the future? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I th- I think um, that uh, Orwell nailed it in 1984, that who controls the present controls the past, and who controls the past controls the future. That mm. Essentially, the, um, the um, horizons that we're able to imagine for ourselves are, uh, in times to come correspond in a way to the, uh, to the ways that we read um, the, the the present and uh, and the past that we've come from. So um, so the manipulation of uh, of historical understandings and and the kind of um, the legislation or the propagation, if you like, of of uh, certain types of reading that say you know there is there is no problem with a racial inequality. That's in the minds of you know of the uh, of the lefty malcontents. Yeah, of the snowflakes. Um, then th- that is a uh, that has as a corollary. Um, a certain, um, you know, uh, disdain, not, not just disdain, I, I need a stronger word than that, but for, um, uh, for progressive agendas that are looking to 
to um, write past wrongs mm. as a prelude to, um, uh, you know, to a, to a future of a, of equality and justice um, and uh, co-creative thriving. So, if we want to bring the, f- if 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 we want to bring a a sense of the future as a as a delicious, nourishing, thriving, happy, connected, nurturing, beautiful possibility. If we want to bring, give people a, a flavour of that in a world where that doesn't even seem to be considered, certainly not in the mainstream media that people encounter. If we want to give people sips or a, or a good drink or a feast a of A smorgasbord. That, a smorgasbord of possibilities. Yeah. So from, from your thinking and, and your research, where do we start? Well, the, um, the tradition that I work in um, uh, operates on the, on the future as a plural space. So the fact that it hasn't happened yet means that it could be many different things. And the opportunity that that uh, um, affords us is the, is the chance to uh, imagine m- multiple alternative futures, um, not just the, the delightful ones that you referred to, but, um, but, but uh, fearful ones and concerning ones and things we want to avoid as well. But in a sense, it's, um, it's a, um, a practice of mapping narrative alternatives in order to be able to navigate with them so that we have a vocabulary for the kinds of, um, of uh, societal possibility that we seem to be you know, moving towards or away from. So um, the way that this sort of traditionally has been done is um, through you know, writing and discussing uh, alternative scenarios. What kind of London, what kind of United States, you know, might there be uh, 20 or 50 years from now um, and uh, what, what are the kind of uh, prospective, if you like, historical logics, scenaric kind mm. of uh, pathways that, uh, that could unfold around us and then in light of those alternatives, what can be done today to make more likely the things that we mm. like and less mm. likely mm. the things that we don't. Um, the, the more recent sort of uh, addition, I suppose, to that, uh, to that perspective is the activation of um, of the arts, of design, of um, theatre and performance, and in a way of materiality uh, beyond you know the page in front of you and the, uh, the the words on the page to to bring those futures to life. So what my practice has been about, and the reason I've sort of found my way to being a, a, a design professor, is um, bringing futures to life in the present as a way of creating. Um, higher resolution mental models mm. um, to think and feel with that um, inform our inform our action today. And could you give us a sure? Yeah, yeah. So, so, so this kind of area of, of practice um, we call experiential futures to kind of highlight the ad- addition uh, of uh, these dimensions of mm. experience on top of the kind of um, cognitive and you know intellectual engagement of a well wrought thought experiment mm. um, and. Uh, well, one of the first projects that um, my colleagues and I did in this vein was for the state of Hawaii, um, where I was a, a graduate student at the time, um, and we put 550 people into four different versions of Hawaii in the year 2050. This was in uh, 2006, so we were looking 44 years out at the mm-hmm, time, mm-hmm. and um, the, the request initially was to uh, support a public conversation about sustainability towards the, the co-creation of a, of a sustainability plan that could be used across the islands, mm-hmm. so across the state. 
Um, and uh, we felt that it was important to not um, begin and end the conversation with people's um, present day preconceptions about what sustainability means mm -hmm. and instead to blow the discussion open to um, to account for the, the things that we don't know about how uh, about how change could unfold so we put f 550 people into four different versions of the year tw 2050 and then for half an hour um, a quarter of that group so 120 130 people whatever it was um, would experience a uh, a one-to-one -one scale fragment of uh, of a Hawaii set in the year 2050 that was radically different from the present in which they were having the event, um, but also radically different from the other three rooms which were manifesting alternative theories of, of so, change. So, so the rooms were created like a theatre set almost? Yeah, that's okay. right. Well, um, I mean, the the event was held at a, um, uh, at a actually a, a ballroom um, uh, or a, ball, a ballroom facility with, with several um, separate spaces that had previously been the Dole Pineapple Cannery. So, it, uh, and they were sort of slightly shabby ballrooms, you know, a li little bit, a little bit worn, um, but, an, but a fantastic place to make over, uh, to turn these four different rooms into four different um, pieces of the mid 21st century in that place. So for example, in one room, there was a live debate on stage between candidates for governor in the 2050 election. Both of these candidates were corporate entities because in this particular future, only one of the four, um, the uh, uh, corporate personhood had been extended um, by the courts to the point where um, companies are running for office uh, and succeeding. Uh, and then, you know, they, uh, and they, um, run government as a as a profit-making enterprise, using you know importing all of the the uh, knowledge that they have from the business world into that space. Um, and a bit ahead of your time there. Well, that was th <laughs> yeah, it was three years before the uh, before the um, Citizens United case came to the Supreme Court, yeah. which w which ended up um, you know taking a, a depressingly decisive step in that direction. Yeah. But again, this was not we were not advocating for this or even against it. What we were doing is providing was, a high yeah. resolution. Um, thought experiment for people to uh, to use as a foil for their own thinking and for their own values. So meanwhile, uh, in another room, there was a um, uh, the Honolulu Ahupua, which is the um, uh, traditional word for the um, for the watershed, um, which was the unit of governance prior to the colonial encounter in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. So this was a this was an alternative future in which um, rather than uh, continuing headlong with the sort of uh, corporatization and Americanization of the Hawaiian Islands, there was a deliberate embrace of and return to traditional values. Mm. So the people in the room had been selected at random, uh, kind of like jury duty. Their number comes up and they have to go in to the uh, civic education center where they learn how to um, make clothing out of hemp or um, biofuel out of algae. Uh, and the intention behind this kind of mandatory, you know, sort of uh, uh, curriculum distributed in random fashion across the population is to instill resilience in that population by having by making sure that people know how to take care of themselves and each other mm. so and then there were you know two others which we don't need to go into but the the point was that uh, each of the um, each of these environments were was uh, a kind of an immersive scenario or a a, uh, a an instantiation of a different theory of change, but made visceral, so that people could be uh, energized, alarmed, um, 
provoked, um, concerned, excited, whatever, by it in the present, and it would, in a sense, collapse the distance, the temporal distance, um, to that uh, to that otherwise remote time of 2050, which it's kind of hard to care about mm, because it's mm. so far away. So that was that's an example. But what um, I've been doing with uh, my collaborators and clients and students for the last dozen years is um, designing and staging experiences of possible futures for all sorts of different contexts and then also creating tools that help people do this for themselves so that it isn't just a kind of expert um, uh, undertaking that's if you like democratizing it so when you do that those four scenarios how did you then once people have gone through the four scenarios how did they then sort of digest or reflect on yes so that's so yeah great question because the um the digestion and reflection part is at is as important as the experience mm. itself so mm. i think when one begins doing this type of thing it can be tempting to imagine that if you uh stage a sufficiently compelling and well thought out and kind of um polished and uh, and uh, excitingly performed, etc., etc., immersion that that somehow works its magic on people automatically, and they'll sort of leave transformed. Mm. And that isn't necess- that's not necessarily untrue. I mean, we've all been to plays or films where there isn't a uh, you know um, a debriefing session afterwards, but mm. it still ha- you know works some kind of magic or some kind of change mm. on us. Um, maybe maybe we'll process that with our friends or family members or the people that we went to or or in uh, you know in the ambient cultural discussion around that cultural artifact um, later but for these kinds of you know uh, more localized interventions where the the people in the room there may be 20 of them or there may be you know a couple of hundred um, the uh, having a conversation which help, which helps people process what's just happened and notice some of the details that they missed and understand what was going on in the minds and in the bodies of the people next to them as well as themselves that becomes really important. So um, the the project I described was, if you like, a prototype for uh, turns out in retrospect to have been a prototype for a sort of modular. Um, uh, brief design brief which i've been running with my students uh in various places around the world for the last uh six years or so called the time machine so the time machine is not a is not a device Mm. um it's it's a room that you turn into a future time and the job is to uh, the the design sort of task is to make the room um a feel like a seamless um, uh, experience of the future that you're trying to have a conversation about. So that's just one single future. That's not that, that's at one a, at a time. One yeah, yeah, yeah. One at a time. That's right. You sort of you 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 visit and spend time and immerse and if you like bathe in a particular future and then you come back to the present and talk about it. So to to answer your question about you know how do you how do you debrief on mm. this, um, uh, the half of the half of the challenge is to create the create the experience that feels like you are time travel traveling and then the other half is to have a high quality conversation about it where you surface the things that people were um, alarmed or excited by mm. where, um, where you ask them to uh, to if you will cash out the lessons mm. um, whatever those might be for action in the present um, so so that's a, that's a you know that's a facilitated conversation um, and of course facilitating a, a, a quality conversation where you draw out the the quiet ones and, and, and try uh, not to have the the loud ones sort of uh, um, dominate the room mm. that that's an art in itself but it's a fairly well-established art whereas 
um, experiential futures are a bit more of a recent mm. addition, but they pair well. Yeah, and so what are the what are the key? I mean, so in the transition movement, it's one of the things that really interests people is that question about how do you how do you get people how do you bring the future out? Mm-hmm. Is it something? Is it something that requires extensive training? Or are, are, are there elements of it that actually anybody could do anywhere with a bit of thinking and a, and a few people? Um, more the latter. I mean, I think doing, um, creating good immersive experiences does take a bit of practice, um, but it's, it's not necessarily expensive or, or that difficult. I mean, um, the, the first time we ran that, the time machine activity for a class was uh, at the National University of Singapore. It was a week-long intensive course uh, that I ran with some friends of mine, Aaron Manium and, and Noah Rafford, and uh, we only had five days with the students, and the first three days we spent orienting them in, the fu- in futures uh, thinking and tools, including uh, scenario creation, generating uh, four alternative scenarios for whichever domain they were dealing with. There were different groups. One uh, dealt with the futures of love, sex, and marriage in Singapore. One dealt with uh, the futures of education. One dealt with the futures of, um, I want to say, the judicial system. So they they all had uh, different domains, but we were providing those um, uh, the kind of pedagogy, the uh, underlying tools, and then the last. Uh, the last day and a half, they had to do the to um, take one of the stories they'd created during that week and turn it into an experience in the classroom. So this is one of the reasons why um, the time machine, as a kind of modularization, is a um, has been educational not just for the students doing it, but for for me and and my uh, you know co-instructors and so on. Seeing dozens of these things being made. Mm. Um, often in really short order um there may be you know they may have two or three weeks if they're lucky of lead time but this is you know if it's a class they're only meeting once a week mm-hmm. uh, and then however much they're, they're meeting outside of that and then the scale of the of the experience is for um usually between 20 and 30 people but what i think is interesting there is that you know 20 or 30 people multiplied by um you know a couple of times a night uh, or let's say that you have so I'm jumping ahead a little bit here but but I want to tie this to to, to the mm. transition um, discussion which I think basically in order to um, uh, normalize the um, high resolution performance and materialization of possible futures um, we tend to think of, of doing this, you know, uh, at multiplexes or through through cinema. But of course, you can um, you can reach a lot of people through a sort of uh, a theatrical mode. Mm. If you have, let's say, four or five time machines running simultaneously, and people move from one to the next, and then in an evening they've experienced four or five versions of their community. Mm. Let's say they visit four or five versions of Totnes, set in 2040, mm. and then they have a conversation about what this all means. Um, in pretty short order, you could get a, uh, particularly at the scale of a, of a, of a place like Totnes, mm. um, you could get a, a, a decent proportion of the population that has those as um, shared mental models. Mm. And they're not drawing them from Hollywood or from um, uh, you know, kind of generic imaginaries that have been devised a long way away just for the purpose of of entertaining them so but something here. yeah rooted rooted in the in those places based on the histories and cultures and even the the specific location where the time machine mm. takes place mm. um and that's the kind of futures thinking that i i think we need 
Um, but so anyway, that's a little bit of a glimpse of how I think something like this mm. might scale as a, as a, as a kind of community based design, uh, practice, but the, um, but for a first step, um, well, I mentioned the, the projects that we work on that are about tools for others. So um, there's a game that my colleague uh, uh, Jeff Watson at the University of Southern California uh, and I uh, designed a few years ago when we were both in Toronto. Um, and it's called The Thing from the Future. And it's a card game which is basically scaffolding for the imagination to um, uh, enable and invite people to, um, to generate very diverse but very specific ideas for things that could exist in possible futures and they can tell mm. stories about them or if you have objects. a bit more yes objects well objects or cultural fragments okay. actually so the first time we did this uh, we made the, the game I'll show you actually I've got some cards okay. here um, but uh, the first edition of the card deck was made as the sort of ideation engine for a design jam which we ran in Toronto for 40 people or so and uh, for the first hour and a half they played a bunch of uh, rounds of the game came up with hundreds of ideas for things from the future that could exist and then spent the second um, uh, chunk of time physically prototyping these things and then we, we uh, filled up a vending machine with artifacts from the future all created in one day by mm. the participants at this event, uh, some of whom had design backgrounds and, and uh, many of whom did not. So um, that is, a, uh, I think, a a pointer towards a kind of practice that doesn't have to be highly elaborate or uh, resource intensive but that if you like lo can lower the barrier to um, to building a relationship a non-fearful um, mm. relationship with uh, with concrete alternative and when, futures. and when you do that do you do you start out by giving them a, a scenario so you know are, are they are they assuming that we are in a world where climate change is... I'll show you. So the, so in this, you could, yes, you could, um, I mean, something like this, you could, you could start with a, um, uh, with a kind of overarching scenario um, or set of scenarios and, and um, uh, have people ideate within those about the sorts of concrete implications that, that mm. the given mm. scenario might, um, uh, might have. But the purpose of the game is to make it not necessary to, or a purpose of it is, is to make it not necessary to have that even that level of um, prior thought. Mm. Um, it, it's intended to give you the, the raw materials with which to, um, in a way, seed your own scenarios. So this version of the game, which is, um, this is the second edition, we finished it um, uh, some months ago, but it's not, it's not out yet. Um, so, uh, but so there are three suits in the deck. Um, so three different kinds of cards, these green ones, are the future cards and they tell you what kind of future you're imagining. Uh, okay. This, These pink cards are the th um, thing cards and they tell you what kind of thing from the future you're going to be imagining. Um, and I, I mentioned this, you, you asked, is it a physical object? Yeah, sometimes, but there's a lot of things in here. I'll, I'll, I'll okay. give some examples in a sec. And then this third uh, suit, the blue cards, are themes or um, aspects of, of life um, or of human endeavor or of the world. So these three uh, suits basically provide you with enabling constraints for your imagination at three different levels of abstraction. This one, the future is a macro level, the, um, the thing is sort of a micro level, it's the, the, the cultural artifact that you're extruding the idea mm -hmm. through, and then the theme is, the, is what gives it its sort of particular flavor or situates it in that world. Okay. So we're looking um, at, at this 
the prompt that happened to come up <laughs> is in a smart future there is a festival related to animals okay. what is it now um you know we could we could <laughs> we could try to figure that out if you digital, like digital digital dogs digital yeah the, the digital uh, dog show <laughs> that sounds fun um but so you know you can change the uh change the future parameter in a queer future in a bizarre future in a volatile future in a noir future in a wise future in a green future okay. each of these uh descriptors has a, a kind of sets a a condition or a mm. type of world that you're being invited to concretize mm -hmm. and then the other two cards help you do that so um let's change this so uh the, the i just gave a few examples of the future card um if we look at the thing card you'll see they're not all concrete things festival uh, a job a disaster uh, a plaything, a monument a game so here we are we've got another uh, another br uh, prompt here from a completely different part of the possibility space. In a green future, there is a breakthrough related to governance. What is it? Nice. Now, you've probably thought about this enough that you could name a whole lot of breakthroughs that you'd like to see happen in, you know, in order uh, yeah, to, yeah. to bring about a green future. But does, does this take your mind anywhere in particular to start with? It takes me to Barcelona and what they're doing in Barcelona. It's a neighborhood assemblies and where you have neighborhood meetings and the neighborhood assemblies then feed into policy making and policy making is shaped by neighborhood decisions. Excellent, okay, so if, but if it's a green, <coughs> it's a few, you're talking about uh, an existing initiative, which is great. Um, if we were to put this in Totnes in 2030, in 2030. Um, what, what might the counterpart be? The green, in a green future for Totnes, there's a breakthrough related to governance. Uh, what could that be? It could be that, um, Uh, it could it could be that Totnes breaks free of the, the battery storage has become so cheap that, that the national grid becomes redundant and Totnes becomes its own energy ecosystem which then has implications in terms of the sort of economic model we're able to create so more money can stay locally huh. and then people have more of a say over how that money gets spent yeah interesting okay so i mean that this is what this is kind of doing is providing qualitative coordinates of a sort for you to search in your imagination mm. and and it's interesting often you know the first things that come up may be um uh, recalled reference points stuff that we're aware of stuff that we've you know read about um, tropes from from comic books or movies that we've seen but um, the uh, when you include the uh, the constraint that this is you know about uh, you put a particular timeline in play and even a particular place and you have to challenge yourself to sort of um, to uh, and, and it actually comes pretty readily it turns out mm. that uh, to to extend your imagination into a place that it hasn't been before and the 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 trick here in a way is that actually or not a trick but <laughs> the guilty secret of this card game is that you don't need the cards in order to do this yeah. what you do need to do is just realize that you're um that any any time you're imagining you're imagining based on layers of constraints that you may not even be aware of and once you um start to kind of open the hood and tinker with those directly and say well let's let's think about these certain kinds of conditions we'll think about this certain kind of space of activity and this certain way of 
of uh, manifesting it, which could be, you know, done just for the purposes of conversation or could be uh, done for generating policy. Mm. You know, um, you make it, there is a policy related to such and such in a certain mm. future and put a time horizon on it and, and a group of people around it. And in, in minutes, you'll be having discussion um, about, um, uh, you know, ab- ab- about the issues at hand. So mm. I, I think it's a kind of, um, th- they're two very different things, you know, the, the, uh, this seemingly two very different things this um kind of skeletal framework for prompting imagination in in the form of a card deck on the one hand and this you know very open-ended sounding um design brief for creating uh creating a fragment of the future in the present that you can Mm. go inside and visit and live in for a bit um but to me they're they're both kind of um uh just fragments of the same kind of landscape of practice mm. around um, making imagination more uh, uh, available to people to use skillfully. Mm. Fantastic. And um, uh, yeah, one of the things that I use is these, these story cubes. Do you know yeah. those things? Rory story cubes. Yeah. I love those things. Yeah. They're fantastic. So this is very much in that same kind so of... It's a bit like, it's like what you do in improv as well, yep. isn't it? There's a lot of that sort of yes and about this. But uh, Yeah, see, no, notice what the... Um, I heard a story recently about um, the, the jazz great Charles Mingus working on a, on a film with um, psychonaut Timothy Leary, okay. and uh, and he said to and, and um, Leary kind of really just wanted to. I, I, I don't know exactly what the film was in their work and I haven't had a chance to look into that but um, but uh, whatever it was I imagine it was it was fairly open ended yeah. it was fairly open ended <laughs> but um, but Mingus said you can't improvise on nothing. And this is an important point. Like when we think about imagine, when we reflect on what our imaginations are doing, they are improvising on the materials that we feed them, yeah. um, and uh, you know, improvising often not particularly well uh, on fairly worn. These are horseflies. They're horrible things. Oh, okay. thanks. Um, uh, on on fairly worn and cliched materials. So I think when we sort of start to attend to imagination as something that can be. Um, uh, that can be cultivated and improved and, uh, uh, you know, sort of like a muscle that can be, uh, mm. that can, um, that we can get into shape by using it. Uh, that begins to suggest ways of, uh, of working together, not just individually to, um, to, to create more imaginative, uh, more imaginative spaces, mm. more imaginative conversations. And that thing of putting limits around, it's like, you know, Dr. Seuss writing a book with 50 words or, the A-team going into the garage and building a tank out of all the stuff they happen to find lying around right. in the garage. You know, that thing of putting constraints around the imagination is, is, is it really sort of, yeah, like, otherwise it's like putting uh, nothing into the Google box and a search engine and expecting to come up with something. Right. You know, constraints really help. Well, I mean, they are essential and, and they're, they're always present um, even if we don't realize they are. Mm. So that's where kind of recognizing that, that when we reach into our, um, uh, in, into our minds for an image of the future, particularly an, Im- an image of the future that, that, uh, that is different from, from um, what comes most readily mm. or what seems to be most likely, um, that we, we need to provide, the, provide ourselves with the materials that let us uh, create those images. Mm. Mm. And you mentioned at the beginning about uh, about school. You know, I w- it feels certainly from my kids' experience of going through school that actually there is no room in education 
for these sort of conversations at the moment and and there's very little that's done about the future or about having those having the kind of skills you've been talking about mm. if you were if you well then maybe this so a question i've asked everybody is is if you if you had if it had been you and not the current incumbent who had been elected the president in the u.s a year ago year and a half ago and you had run on a platform of make america imaginative again and you had felt that actually what was needed above rather than having a national innovation strategy Mm -hmm. we needed a national imagination Mm. strategy which said we need imagination to run through schools through public life through policy making through everything what might you do in your first hundred days in the oval office if it were a question of um I mean, I, I think that there are that, uh, the um, the inst- the instilling of imagination throughout um, throughout a society uh, it doesn't come through intervening in one spot. Mm. But the uh, the the three kind of main sites uh, where things seem to be most lacking to me are in politics, media, and education. Mm. Those are sort of the three institutional, you know areas of deficit if you like um and i think probably education is is one of the um is one of the most readily addressable because the whole point of education is to you know is to kind of uh program and prepare Mm. um uh in in instill in your emerging citizens uh a uh, the capabilities that you think they'll need so i would probably start with with an educational initiative that would you know um put uh, the A from, you know, you, you will have heard, you know, from STEM, science, technology, engineering, and maths, uh, to STEAM, put, putting arts uh, mm-hmm. in their rightful place right in the middle uh, of, that, uh, of, of that combination. Um, but I think specifically, um, or more specifically than that, the um, futures as a, as, a, uh, as a capability is learnable. Mm-hmm. I, fir- I came across it um, myself first when I was um, 16 years old in high school um, and you know it wasn't too late <laughs> but it would have been handy to, to be exposed to it even earlier mm. I think um, to uh, so that is an that's an education level intervention the um, uh, re- requiring futures education that I think could make a, a really significant difference quite quickly mm. we're doing it sort of organically at, uh, or on a on an opportunistic basis at the moment so um one of my jobs at uh, at, at carnegie mellon um at the school of design is to integrate futures into the design curriculum um and uh so that you know with the the under under lying premise there being that if you're going to be designing things you should be capable of thinking well about the kinds of futures that you're designing for mm, and mm, against, mm. Um, and the, that those layers of temporal and systems context need to be um, uh, fluidly navigable by uh, by a good designer, and in mm, uh, at mm. this moment in history, um, and perhaps you know uh, in general, maybe this is a sort of maturation. Mm, uh, mm. A, a kind of growing into um, the the implications of our plasticity as a species is to is to realize that we uh, we are we are shaping the world around us. Let's do it sort of, 
knowledgeably and knowingly. Mm. Um, so I think that's the first thing is um, is the education, um, and then the the other two fronts, the uh, media and politics. You know, it might be tricky to do in the first 100 days, but um, requiring <laughs> people to um, requiring uh, and encouraging, maybe modelling this. Um, uh, political um, candidates to um, demonstrate the futures that they are intending to bring about. So um, that rather than sort of hitting the campaign trail with just slogans um, and, you know, kind of um, appealing to per- to per- um, personality and identity, they're actually sort of, they have to show uh, create, let's say, documentaries from the future that show um, how their policies would play out. Mm. I, th- I, I think that would be incredibly interesting mm. um, and provide uh, a much richer basis for evaluating the, the quality of the imagination and the systems thinking of the people who are appealing to us for, for, for our votes. Um, and then the, the media thing, well, I mean, that's, that's harder to intervene in and I'm not sure that legislating is the way to do that. But I think um, uh, creating um, instances uh, of the kind that we were talking about earlier, um, the uh, the community level experiences uh, of of possible futures for the places where we live, that would be worth investing in through, um, if it were in the United States, the National Endowment for the Arts, which of course has been you know kind of gutted and mm. um, uh, and devalued systematically for uh, for quite a while. Um, the the in investment in people's ability to um, to bring the bring futures to life in the present f- to experience I think would be um, effort well well spent. Mm-hmm. So just if, uh, any last thoughts around imagination and the future and anything you you wanted to say on that that I haven't asked you the question to set you off on. I think. Um, you should, if you haven't, um, take a look at Steve Duncombe's book *Dream: Reimagining Progressive Politics in an okay. Age of Fantasy*, um, which came out in 2007, so the year before the kind of Obama um, uh, "Yes, We Can" came about. He, he he's a, a, a colleague of mine, a professor at New York University, um, and a lifelong political activist um, who wrote this book essentially about imagination and the importance of of engaging. Um, uh, the uh, emotions and the guts, um, not just appealing to people's, um, you know, rational minds in relation mm, to policy. Mm. Um, and I think there's that that would be a, a he he might be an interesting person for you to talk to. Mm. He and his um, uh, co-conspirator Steve Lambert, who's a, an artist, um, they have a, an outfit called the Center for Artistic Activism that, nice. that might be um, good to look into. Um, but yeah, as far as um, ad- additions to to our conversation, you know, my my work, my motivation in a way is uh, about encouraging and enabling a social capacity for foresight. Um, uh, and I didn't, you know, dream that up out of nowhere. I, like I said, I, I work in a tradition that um, for for over half a century has has been specifically focused on how we can use the future or use pl- plural futures to um, to make change more effectively um, but also I would add you know more humanely and mm. justly and 
um, uh, in more enlightened fashion. But I think that the uh, the thing that excites me about your project and your focus on imagination is that it is a it's a capacity that we sort of airily talk about as being you know valuable and important kind of mm. like you know poetic language isn't it nice imagination isn't it liberating but it's actually um uh, imagination to me is is actually a collective capacity and the ability to think about futures is a collective capacity. It might seem individual because that's where, you know, the thoughts appear to be happening in our own minds. Mm. But the but the societies that we're in and the people we're around are the kind of um, enabling or disabling container for that. Um, so I think if we look at the... Um, uh, look at the terrain of intervention, if you will, as being um, the... A kind of what Gregory Bateson called a mental ecology, an ecology of mind. How do you create situ- situations which might be at a room scale or might be at a city scale, like the the um, the elephant and mm. um, and girl puppet uh, that you described? How do you create situations that elevate people's capacity and willingness, ability to be imaginative, mm. uh, and further, you know, to deploy those towards um, towards imagining particular futures alternative futures mm. not just the hopeful ones because I, I don't think we can live on a diet of, of hope alone mm. it's like mm. sort of um, uh, I, I, I think a uh, I think a healthy uh, mental ecology like other kinds of ecology is um, the index of that is its diversity mm. so you need a diversity of alternative um, of alternative futures to be present and available to people um, as the uh, materials with which to navigate mm, their options. Mm, mm. I think that's a, that's a critical part of um, transforming governance um, mm. in our lifetimes. Mm.